Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. We're in the first chapter of Ephesians, have been since uh, the New Year started. And we'll finish, Lord willing, the first chapter today. So I invite your attention there to the 15th verse of Ephesians chapter 1. The title of the message this morning is Praying Like Paul. Praying Like Paul. I suppose everyone has someone in your life that has a skill you wish you had. All of us have said things like, I wish I could jump like that guy or sing like that girl or paint like that master. Even in the church, we can harbor spiritual envy sanctified envy for some saint's ability to teach or to play an instrument or even pray beautiful and meaningful prayers. However, when I hold up this morning the Apostle Paul as an example of a great prayer, I'm not speaking of the precision of his words or even the tone that he spoke with. I'm not pointing to the mastery that he had of syntax or the depth of his vocabulary or even the aesthetic beauty of his word choices. I'm rather referring to the content of his prayers. God the Father is always more considerate of the content of our prayers than the style of our prayers and our worship in general. And when we think about our individual and collective progress in sanctification as a church, one of the regrets that I often hear from some of you, and I've said it myself, is that we're dissatisfied seemingly with our prayer life. Sometimes we say we, we know we don't pray enough. Now that's true in my own life. We know that Paul said, pray without ceasing. And sometimes we can get to the end of the day, turn down the bed covers and realize we're about to cease without praying. We have distractions, kids and entertainment and work and bills. And, and so we find it hard to concentrate for long periods of time. And even when we get together with our friends and at church or in a Bible study or just the two of you to pray it sometimes uh, can be a matter of anxiety. We're self-conscious about praying out loud and someone else hearing our prayers. And, and then the one I hear, I think probably as much as anything, is, Pastor, I just don't know where to start. How do you start praying? Well, today is a good lesson in that. What should the content of our prayers be? Praying like the Apostle Paul. Well, I think we're in good company when we have uh, some frustration about our prayer life. Uh, the 12, the disciples of the Lord Jesus shared that same frustration. And in fact, they just cried out one day, almost begged Jesus in Luke 11, 1, Lord, teach us how to pray, just as John taught his disciples. And what follows there in Luke chapter 11 is what we often refer to as the Lord's Prayer, sometimes the model prayer. And we know that the model prayer w was not intended to be recited verbatim, the exact words of which God has to have or he won't hear our prayers, but rather it's an example to us of the content. These elements ought to be contained in our prayers. He begins with praise. He says that God's name is to be made holy. It is holy. It is hallowed be thy name. And then he talks about the kingdom coming, which is a spiritual realm. He talks about forgiveness of sins. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. He talks about temptation and our need for God's help to avoid it. There's only one sentence, so far as I can tell, in the Lord's Prayer that speaks of physical needs. And that's the one where he says, give us today our daily, what? Bread. And of course, we take that not just to be food, but all the necessities of life. Now, that's not to say that 
God is not concerned with our physical needs. He certainly is. Jesus was always concerned about the physical needs of those around him. He was often moved with compassion for those who were hungry or sick or impoverished or victims of injustice. But he always made it equally clear that man's greatest need was a restored relationship with his creator. That, after all, was his ultimate mission in the world, to die for sinners, to make a way for salvation and reconciliation with God. Well, the spiritual needs of people were certainly also the primary focus of the ministry of the Apostle Paul, though he was concerned with the physical. If you read the pastoral epistles, he, he gave Timothy advice about how to maintain good health. He, he told him how to avoid unnecessary anxiety. But his primary focus was the spiritual. Now, we need not wonder about how Paul prayed because there are literally dozens of his prayers recorded in the New Testament. In fact, I went back and reread all of the prayers of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament this week, and I just had a pencil in my hand and a piece of paper, and I wrote down the themes as they came. And the one that was repeated most often was the theme of thankfulness. You just can't get away from the idea that Paul was a thankful person. Every time he seemingly bowed his knee to, to prayer or took a pen to paper to write down a prayer, Thanksgiving seemed to burst forth from him almost involuntarily. He was a thankful person, thankful for his own salvation. He certainly was thankful for the blessings of God. But I took note that he was especially thankful for the people of God. Now, sometimes they disappointed him. Sometimes they hurt him. And sometimes they even broke his heart. But he was uh, incessantly thankful for the people of God. He had a concern for others, the lost and the saved in his prayers and he seemingly could not finish a sentence in his prayers without pausing to praise Jesus. His desire was for the comfort, the hope, and the peace of other Christians. And his desire that God would open doors for him and other evangelists to take the gospel to those who had not heard it. And he always prayed for this wisdom that he would need in preaching the word. But I noticed that there was almost nothing in the way of praying for his own personal welfare or ease of life. We say, well, he must have had perfect health. He must have not had any problems. Therefore, he didn't have to pray for those things. Well, not so much. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four. 24, he pulls back the curtain a little bit and let us see what his personal life was like. This is what he said. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in dangers from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, danger in the country, danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. And so you think, here's a person, if anyone would have a need to pray for physical well-being, it would be Paul, and yet that's almost absent from his prayer life. Let's see why that is today. Let's look at our text. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Paul writes, for this reason I too, having heard of the faith of the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. 
I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory and his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. There are three points I want to draw from these verses. Number one, Paul's prayer life was centered on the spiritual. Second, it was focused on the specific. And finally, it was secured by the Savior. Paul's prayer life was centered on the spiritual. Look at verse 17. He says that I'm praying for you believers. He's writing to Christians and he's saying that he has given thanks for them and the faith that he's heard about that exists in them. And then he explains what he's praying for on their behalf. Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. He's asking for a gift to be given by God to believers. Now I take that to mean all believers, not some super spiritual sect within the church. This is a prayer for all believers. Now, some years ago, when uh, we just had one little girl, she was still a baby, my wife and I uh, flew out for a conference in Los Angeles and I rented a car and we were there a day early and we drove up the Pacific Coast Highway, which is one of my favorite drives in the world. And we made it all the way up to San Simeon before it was time to turn around and head back south. Now San Simeon's a beautiful little village right on the coast there in central California. But what makes it famous is that it was the home of William Randolph Hearst, of the famous Hearst Publishing Company. Now he had mansions all over the world, but one of his favorites he built right on a cliffside overlooking the Pacific Ocean. Today it's a tourist attraction. And so we could see it from a far distance and we got up there and uh, what they had done along the driveway about halfway up, they had put up a place where you had to pay $20 to make it all the way up to the house. And then you could take your picture and come back. And you know me, we took our picture from a distance and kept traveling. <laughs> but, but I remember the story that Warren Wiersbe loved to tell, who was uh, for a long time the pastor at the Moody Church in Chicago. Dr. Wiersbe told a story about William Randolph Hearst, and of course he was an extremely wealthy man. And it seems that Mr. Hearst loved to collect famous pieces of art, paintings and sculptures and so forth. And one day Mr. Hearst is thumbing through an art book, and he comes across a picture of a painting that he just fell in love with, to the point where he just had to have it in his collection. So he called his art agent in and showed him the picture and said, I must have this painting I'm gonna give you an expense account, I don't care how long it takes, how much it costs, go find this painting, buy it, and put it in my collection. And the agent said, okay. He set out to travel, and after many months, he came back to Mr. Hurst's office, knocked on the door, he was welcomed in, he said, well, what'd you find? He said, I have found it. He said, where was it? He says, in your warehouse, you bought it years ago. Here's the problem so many in the church have. We feel when we look out at the culture, when we look in, at the fact that we are in seemingly the vast minority, even in our own country as Christians, we become downcast and defeated and we feel spiritually impoverished. 
And all the while, Paul says, we have all of these spiritual blessings, including the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, available to us today, and we wring our hands and we shuffle our feet and we say, woe is me. And Paul is praying that we would have the light turned on in our heart, that we would come to an understanding of how wealthy we are spiritually because of a relationship, he says, in Christ. Remember, he's already said that we have access to every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so a lot of times when we pray for things like strength and wisdom, and, and we pray for the ability to live a victorious Christian life, the truth is those things already exist. We just need to turn the light on and, and gain access to them. So this is what Paul is praying. But you'll notice that his prayers are on the spiritual. Look at verse 17 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Three words there, spirit, wisdom, revelation. Now you'll notice that this is a lowercase s. And some people interpret this as the gift of the Holy Spirit. But we know that's not right because Paul in other places teaches that if we have not the Holy Spirit, we're not a Christian. So he's not praying that they would receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, they already have that. This lowercase s means an attitude. It means a disposition towards something. So if you have a spirit of anger, you know what that means. You have a hot temper, right? So if you have a spirit of discernment, of wisdom and revelation, you are predisposed to have an understanding and a comprehension about what? He says, of the knowledge of God. So he wants every Christian to have a knowledge and a comprehension of who God is and what he's like and what his expectations are. And he's asking God to impart as a gift to every Christian this disposition. Now he goes on in verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Now Paul loved to mix his metaphors and here's an example of that. Now in, in our Western culture, we think of the heart as the seat of emotion. Last week was Valentine's Day, right? And we say sometimes, well, that girl broke my heart back in high school. And we mean that we were emotionally devastated by the end of that relationship. Well, in the Hebrew culture, and Paul was Jewish, the heart was the mind. It was the essence of one's intellectual understanding. It was the core of who he was. And so he's praying that in the very core of who we are, our eyes would be enlightened. That is, the switch would go on that we could see what's been around there all the time. Now, if we turned down the lights in here and it was pitch black when you walked in and you, you sat down, you might could sense there were other people around you. But when the light came on, you could see where they are and how to access them. Well, this is the case again in the Christian life. Oftentimes we walk around with blinders on, unaware, either through willful neglect or ignorance or, or lack of access to the truth. Jeff talked about this morning, these, these dear uh, Athabascan Indians in Alaska, uh, there were missionaries that came in years ago and there's a number of Christians in every village, but they do not have access to very simple uh, discipleship that you and I have come to take for granted around here. And we hear that from missionaries all over the world where there are second and third generations of Christians in these countries, lots of times they do not have access to even the basic teaching. And so we feel it our calling as a church to help them gain access to that. But that's not our excuse here, right? 
My goodness, we certainly have access to, to teaching. We have Christian bookstores. We have Christian radio. Uh, we have to be discerning about what we hear on Christian television and radio and, and bookstores. But there are some wonderful teaching. And we have gifted Sunday school teachers here. You have a gifted staff. And so for us to say that we don't have access is simply not true. Maybe it's that the light has just not gone off. And this is what Paul is praying for. Now, three things he prays for that we would begin to see. And that's the second point, focused on the specific. What specifically? Now, overarchingly, he says, I want you to have wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. Now, specifically in what three areas? Number one, he says that they would understand the hope of their calling. I think he speaks here of our effectual calling which is the moment in time in which the Holy Spirit opens our eyes spiritually and we're born again. And so I think it also includes everything associated with that. And so I would include in the hope of our calling all of those wonderful doctrines that he lays forth in the first 14 verses of chapter 1. Do you remember? Election, predestination, regeneration, justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification. And we don't use those words to try to impress you. We want to create in every member of this church a basic theological vocabulary so that when we come to a verse in the Bible that teaches that doctrine, you can access that in your mind so that you can give glory to God. By exposure, repeatedly, you can gain a deeper appreciation for anything, right? I've told you the story before. Fifteen years ago, I spent a summer in St. Petersburg, Russia. And I'm a country boy from Mississippi, okay? Didn't have a lot of knowledge about the great artist of the world. But one of my duties that summer was to escort a group of American tourists once a week into the Hermitage, which is one of the greatest art museums in the world. Treasures some of the true masters. And I went through that tour, guided tour, with an expert no less than 20 times that summer. And by the end of that summer, believe it or not, even I had some appreciation for art. She taught me the difference in what is common and pedantic to that what makes a true master work of art. Here's what Paul's doing. If there was ever a Christian who understood on a deep level the magnitude and the breadth and the depth of our blessings in Christ, it was the Apostle Paul, and he wants every other believer to have that same appreciation. This is what he's praying for when he says the, the hope of your, your calling. He wants us to comprehend the greatness of our salvation, which he refers to as our inheritance. Remember, inheritance is that which waits for us, but it also means the summation of everything that is included from time immemorial where God chose us before the foundation of the world to where he brought that about in time and place through the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross, to the time and space where he gave us the effectual calling, forgave our sins, justified us. He's now sanctifying us and one day will bring us to that place of glorification. And Paul says, look, I want you to have every single molecule of blessing that is associated with that. And then he says, I want you to understand the surpassing greatness of God's power towards us who believe. Now you think of the most powerful thing you can think of. I, I like to go over to Alliance Airport when they're having the air shows over there. And these jets will come screaming down the runway and then almost magically 
they put those things in a climb just almost vertically and the thrust that it must take to get those massive aircraft off the ground, what power. Or then when we think about uh, a nuclear explosion, what power, almost incomprehensible power. And yet those things, a jet aircraft and even an atomic explosion, pale in comparison to the power of God. And the greatest expression of God's power was not when he spoke the word and set the universe in orbit. That's what he did. That's very powerful. And the greatest example of God's power is not even when Jesus calmed the seas. The greatest example of the surpassing greatness of God's power is when he raised Jesus from the dead. And Paul says that same power is toward us. That is, it's directed toward us. So if you're one of those Christians that's going around shuffling your feet and looking down at the ground and wringing your hands and pronouncing, woe is me, you need to be reminded that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, God is directing for your sanctification and will one day bring you to glory. And so um, Paul uses actually four separate Greek words to describe this power. The first is dunamis where we get the word dynamic or even dynamite. It's, it's the word working. It's the word strength. It's the word might. He is just adding superlative to superlative to describe God's supernatural power. In fact, theologians uh, have, have summed up God's power with the word omnipotent, right? He is all-powerful. There's nothing more powerful than God. There's nothing that he wills to do that he's incapable of doing. But Paul's point is, it's not just like a ball over a kitten making him frustrated that he's not able to reach it. God is directing that power for our good and for his glory. Now finally, I want us to see thirdly that uh, these prayers of Paul are secured by the Savior. Did you notice when we were studying through the book of Acts and we find Paul in these various difficult situations? He's getting run out of town. He's getting stoned. He's being whipped, as he said, with rods. He's being left for dead. He's being cast into prison. Even in the Philippian jail, we find that he is the coolest character in the room, right? Supremely confident. Around midnight, he's chained hand and foot to, to the wall in this dank dungeon. And an earthquake comes on top of all of that. And what's Paul doing? He's singing a hymn. And then he has the peace of mind to say to this man who's supposed to have everything together, the Philippian jailer, put your sword up, do yourself no harm for we are all here. And then he had the wherewithal to lead this man to faith in Jesus in the middle of a catastrophe. Where do you get such confidence? Where do you get such peace? Where do you get such supernatural power? It's because he understood that he was in Christ Remember I said that Paul finds it hard to pray an entire sentence without stopping to praise Jesus? Look at what I mean here in uh, verse 19. He says, And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about, what? In Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. It's almost identical to what he says in Philippians chapter 2, 
where he's talking about Jesus condescending to leave the glories of heaven, to take on a life and, and, and go to the shameful death of the cross. Paul could not leave it there. He says there's coming a day when every knee will bow, things in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's speaking of the consummation of human history, and he's saying it will be brought about in God's timing in the person of Christ. In verse 22, he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body and fullness of him who fills all in all. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Christianity and the church are not some appendix to human history. We are at the very center of human history. The questions that the philosophers have asked through the ages and what every teenager asks at some point, why am I here? What's the purpose of life? What's it all about? That is answered here in Ephesians chapter one. We were created to give glory to God. And the reason that God created the universe is because he had in his mind in the secret counsels of God that he was going to set aside from all humanity a people distinct and different for his own glory. And in space and time, he sent out the effectual call to each of those believers and the Holy Spirit did a miracle work in their heart as we'll see next week. And they, he called the dead to life. And we came forth spiritually and we believed. And in every generation, in every epoch of history, he is adding to that body of believers that we call the church and who the Bible calls the elect. And one day when the very last of those people comes to faith, Paul says the trumpet of God will stand, will sound, and the dead in Christ will rise, and all of human history will come to a climactic ending. When Jesus comes back, not riding the foal of a donkey, but on a white war horse, and everyone will see that title that is written across his chest and thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And every believer in this room gets to share in that because we are by virtue of his grace and our faith in him in Christ. And may the Lord grant to us to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened that we may understand the hope of his calling, that we may understand the value of our heavenly blessings and our inheritance, and may, may we come to comprehend the exceeding greatness of the power that God is working towards us for our sanctification and for his glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you for this word and it's almost too good to believe that people like us, just common men and women, boys and girls, that you chose us before we ever were born to bring glory to yourself through the person and work of Jesus. And Lord, when we are tempted to feel abandoned or orphaned and powerless in this world where we're so outnumbered, Lord, help us to remember how Paul prayed. It's not wrong to pray for our physical health, but the truth is, Lord, all of us are moving towards death. It's pointed every one of us wants to die and then to be judged. So Father, help us that our prayer life would reflect that truth 
that we value the eternal and the spiritual more than the temporary. I thank you for the great example of Jesus and his model prayer. I thank you for the great example of Paul and the many prayers that he offers in the New Testament. Father, I pray for any believer in this room who's downcast or downtrodden or worried or overwhelmed in the world today. Father, help them to see, open the eyes of their heart that they would comprehend. Give them a disposition to understand your revelation and wisdom, Father, as we continue this study in the book of Ephesians. Lord, I pray you would use this study to transform many lives in this church for your glory. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.